Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to something else. Welcome to Revelwill. Brutes. Brutes. Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to something to wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? Ah, can you believe it is 2018? What's going to happen in 2018, man? Hopefully a lot of good stuff. I'm looking forward to it. Um, so, so am I. I'm really excited for 2018. 2017 was great. And just looking forward because I believe, I truly believe, 2018 is going to be bigger, better, and more exciting than 2017. And that was going to be hard to top. Of course, we're talking about from a podcast perspective. And let me tell you, from a podcast perspective, you've got one heck of a January coming your way. 
Uh, next week we have got the rockers. We're going to break down in long form, their entire WWF run. And then we're going to carry Marty Jannetty through his last WWE appearances. So you're going to get the rockers, all things rockers and Marty Jannetty next week, Friday, January the 12th, mark your calendars right now. And then we're going to finish out January with two Royal rumble specials. We've got 1988 and 1998 coming your way. And 1988 is going to be a little bit of a departure for us. We're going to do another watch along style. So if you haven't already fire up your WWE network subscription, because you're going to want to join us for Royal rumble, 1988, Bruce, I'm pretty fired up about that. I really like the really old shows and 88. That's about as old as we can get on this show. (laughs) My first ever pay-per-view, my first ever live show that I did with, uh, the WWE on television not pay-per-view, but on television. And the first one that I ever wrote with commercial breaks and everything and the invention of Titan time developed by Dick Ebersol. So we're pretty excited about these shows and we'd love to have your feedback and your interaction. And we're going to have posts going up on our Facebook page and you'll be able to ask questions. And of course, at the end of each episode, we answer your questions. So if you've got questions about the rockers or Royal rumble, 88 or Royal rumble, 98, be on the lookout for those posts over at facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. But before we look forward, I guess we should look back. I've had a good time interacting with folks about last week's episode vengeance 2001. I thought it was one of our better shows. I felt like he gave us a lot of content. I thought it was a pretty good deal. What'd you think of vengeance 2001? It was nice to go back and relive it because it was a moment in time that was so vivid to me, the whole uh, undisputed champion with Jericho and, and just the, the incoming of the NWO change was in the air and we were getting rid of the old and in with the new, um, it was just an interesting time. Well, and it's going to be an interesting time when we talk about the creation of raw stay tuned on the other side. We're looking forward to it. Here we go. All right, Bruce, now it's time for what everyone's here for. What happened when the world wrestling federation created Monday night raw. And of course we're doing this because later this month, the WWE is going to be presenting to you the 25th anniversary of raw. It's hard to believe this was 25 years ago, man. I remember the first episode of raw. I was actually in the hospital getting my tonsils removed. And, uh, I remember it being on TV. I don't know why I had to stay overnight. I guess there was some complication. Who, who knows? I was a kid, but I remember being excited about the first Monday night raw. And I'm sure that your memories of that are maybe a little different. So let's go a little deep dive. I guess we should remind everybody that the very first episode actually aired on January 11th, 1993. So yesterday was really the 25th anniversary and it replaced primetime wrestling, which aired from January 1st of 85 all the way until the week prior, which is January 4th, 1993, uh, all told they did 417 episodes, I believe. And we did a full episode specifically dedicated to primetime wrestling, which is available in our archives over at something But Monday night raw is a much different format from primetime. The original hosts of the show way back when on primetime were Jesse Ventura and Jack Reynolds and Jack stayed until July 9th of 85. And then gorilla monsoon replaced him the very next week. And I think that's where 
we all sort of started to fall in love with gorilla monsoon. Bobby would end up replacing Jesse in June of 86. And then for the rest of the run, it was gorilla and Bobby until 1991. Occasionally we would see some guest hosting from Roddy Piper with gorilla in 89. And that's when the Bobby Heenan show was doing the last half hour. In 1991, they changed the format a little bit and Vince started to co-host with Bobby and they did it in front of an audience, which was kind of fun. And I think my most vivid memory of that format is the debut of Ric Flair. Uh, the primetime show itself drew a 1.8 rating in September of 92, and it was the lowest cable rating for them in history. October 26th on primetime, they did a 2.0 rating. So as we head into the last quarter of 1992 and ratings are hitting an all-time low, that's probably what prompts the discussion for, hey, man, let's try something different. Am I right? No. It was it was not the ratings. You know, we really weren't as ratings conscious back then. More than anything, what prompted the change was cost. Vince was into having different talent. He was looking to do something new. He, he wanted to have live uh, interaction, the bits in between the matches. He wanted them to be live. I want it to be more topical. We've got to talk about so that everybody knows we're live and we can talk about what's going on in the world today and we can be like everybody else. That's what's going to set us apart. The problem is, is I think the people tune into a wrestling show to see wrestling and they don't want to hear wrestling commentators doing news commentary and talking about the Columbine shooting or, or all of the other news that everybody else is talking about. So to me, I didn't see live as being that big of an issue. Plus you add on top of that, that Vince wanted to bring in new talent, different talent every single week to be live in the studio, to add a different dimension, get more talent exposed on primetime wrestling. Well, this just proved to be a nightmare booking wise, because we were booking all over the country, had live events going on all over the country. We had to bring talent in normally the, the night before on Sunday to get them in, especially if you're talking about the winter time in the Northeast. And the cost was just getting to be exorbitant. So we said, how can we, how can we cut the cost, but then make it a different show? And we started talking about doing a live studio wrestling show. And creating our own, uh, building our own arena, if you will, uh, right there in Stanford. We looked at different warehouses and different buildings, and we we finally looked at the the old warehouse, uh, merchandise warehouse that was attached to the television studio. So, man, let's let's just build it here, and we'll build the perfect uh, wrestling studio arena that we could have people come through and route the talent through there. So yeah, the additional, you know, the, uh, initial idea wasn't so much about ratings because for USA, they were happy with the ratings and we weren't looking at them per se. So let me get this straight. The original idea was not to use the Manhattan center, but to instead build your own sort of like we saw 
Well, most wrestling in the eighties was studio wrestling. When I think about, you know, Memphis, or I think about, you know, Crockett TV on TBS, it was all studio wrestling. So Vince sort of wanted to go back to that format. He wanted to go to a live set. Now he didn't, he hated the studio setting. Now, when I say that we were going to build a studio, we were going to build a small arena that was going to look like an arena versus a television studio with a ring in it. Um, so that, that was the general idea at first. And as we started having people come in and look at the merchandising warehouse adjacent, they started giving us costs to do that. And that was going to cost a lot of money. Vince still liked that idea. Kind of liked the idea of, of having, having his own arena where we keep all of the funds. We could do free shows if we wanted, but uh, it was another revenue stream as well. So then he starts talking about, do we really want to come from Stanford, Connecticut live every week? Right. The idea being that coming from New York sounds like a much bigger deal to the rest of the world than Stanford, New York. So we started thinking about different places in New York and the idea came about because in the old days in Madison square garden, they used to sell out the garden and then they would sell tickets to the paramount theater next door to Madison square garden. And they would play closed circuit TV for people in New York. This before cable and all that other stuff. So Vince started thinking about what if we just went to the Paramount Theater. I think it held 600 to 1,000 people in that in that range. And Vince thought, man, that'll be a really cool setting. It's in New York. Everybody knows Madison Square Garden. The Paramount, for years, we've been doing things there. Let's do it at the Paramount. So we started looking into the availability of the paramount and, and what we, what we could, what we couldn't do is we started looking at the paramount, the, the problem of basketball and every other event in the world taking place in the garden, you're battling that. So it became, well, shit, if we do the paramount, they have a basketball game. People are going to be confused. Uh, they have a concert. We're, we're battling the concert and out of nowhere, they, they being the garden people also manage the Manhattan center. They suggested this venue. I said, go over and take a look at, at the Manhattan center. So we walk into the Manhattan center and when we walk in the first place that they take us to is that ballroom downstairs. And it looked like a bomb had gone off in this thing. <laughs> only half of it was there shit hanging, you know, and old chandeliers and everything. They would only let us go on the outskirts and Vince looked at it and was like, this is perfect. I want to do it right here, but I don't want you to repair anything. I said, well, we have to, because <laughs> you know, um, for safety reasons, right. you know, we've got to repair all this stuff, man. It's dilapidated. So how long is that going to take? That's ah, probably going to take about a year or two. God damn it. What else have you got? So, well, we've got the dance hall and the big, the big reception room upstairs. I think it was on the sixth or seventh floor. 
and we take these old rickety ass elevators and we go upstairs and we walk on to a carpeted, really nice ballroom, lack of a better term, with a big balcony around it. And that was the Manhattan Center. From there, we walk uh, out of the ballroom into a control room that was on the, the same level that they had, that the place was completely already wired and they had a state of the art control room. So you don't need a truck. So it's like, Hey, this is getting better every, you know, every time we turn a corner because we don't have to rent a truck now every Monday. Uh, we've got a control room right here. We can run everything from right here. And this is a neat looking building. Everyone fell in love. And we decided this is where we're going to do Monday Night Raw from the Manhattan Center. So the original idea of building in Stamford, how long was that floating around before you guys sort of shift gears to New York? Pro- I mean, it kind of all happened simultaneous because we knew that wasn't going to happen overnight. We knew that was going to take some time, probably six months. And Vince wanted, you know, Vince makes a decision. I want to change. I want to go now. He wants to go now. He wants to go yesterday. Why the hell aren't we already there? So it was all taking place at the same time. Um, so pretty damn quick that we were looking at New York buildings. We looked at, you know, we looked at Poughkeepsie because he had done TV in Poughkeepsie for so many years. We looked at Allentown and, and Scranton in the areas nothing had the cachet of New York city in the Manhattan center though. No. I mean, if you were to say it's a big deal, we're the biggest wrestling company (laughs) in the world. We're live from Scranton. It it doesn't have the ring to it It, as, as a redneck down here in Alabama, you know, New York, come on. Yeah. yeah, You think, you think of Scranton and it's funny because people in the South always would associate Scranton with scrotum. I'm like, what? What? No. Yeah, that's what that's what I said. But you, friends who, of mine would say that to me. Who are you yeah. hanging out with where, where people uh, think Scranton is scrotum? Well, you know. That almost sounds like an opportunity for a t shirt plug, but I'm gonna resist. Let's move along to um the financials, and I'm sure you're gonna kayfabe all this, but when you identify the Manhattan Center, does Vince try to lock down a long term deal or or give us a, a flyover of what the deal is? Is it week to week? It, does he say, I want it every Monday for the next year? Or what do the terms look like? We didn't know because it was an experiment. And we knew that we wanted, we were going to have to change all of our booking. And we were going to have to change the way that we were doing business at the time to concentrate more on the Northeast. In Vince's perfect world, he would have loved to have had Monday Night Raw live every single Monday. The reality of it was we were booked, and we were booked several months in advance all over the country. So we had to logistically make it work. And we started looking at how many can we do live, and then we're going to have to tape some here and there to accommodate a West Coast tour uh, a pay-per-view on the West Coast. We can't just put everybody on a plane and jump back to do Raw Live. Maybe we'll do it on the road sometimes, or maybe we'll just tape more at the Manhattan Center. 
there were a lot of questions that we did not have the answers to. So we had to go back and look at what was booked and look at the availability of the Manhattan Center because it was being rented out at the time. People were still using it. And he just looked at, okay, let's book as many dates as we can that make sense for us. And we'll run in the Manhattan Center and then we'll figure it out after the fact. If we can't, if we're on a West Coast, we can't make it back, then we won't. But if we can, let's do it. So it wasn't necessarily something where Vince had exclusivity for Mondays for five years or some such. No, no, not at all. We, we picked what dates that they had available and what dates made sense for us. Uh, indie promotions have ran, um, a lot of those buildings in the area and had a lot of trouble at different times making it work because of the economics. Of course, we've talked about one night stand here on the show and the Hammerstein ballroom is one that I know ring of honor and ECW and some other promotions have ran, but it, it gets pretty pricey. Can you give us an idea of what sort of cost was associated with running the Manhattan center 25 years ago? A lot. Uh, <laughs> I, and I don't know. And I, I just don't know the price, but I do remember after about two months of doing it, Vince sitting at the table and going, oh, damn, because the idea of going raw and doing a live show was first born out of me. Uh, I said, why don't we do a live television show? Because when you looked at the cost of doing everything in the Northeast based on a tour that was already in the Northeast, doing a live show made sense. It actually would have been less money to produce a live show in the studio in Stanford, if we had that, then it would have been to go out and rent a building and, and do a live show. Well, we ended up renting not just a building, but one of the most expensive buildings in Manhattan, in the Manhattan Center. In addition to renting the building, we rented the production room, all the production facilities that they had in the Manhattan Center. So Vince is looking at this after a couple months of going, God damn, this was a money saving thing. And now we're, we're spending 10 times what we were spending when we wanted to save money. We're doing this ass backwards, but now we're in it and I like it <laughs> type thing. So it, it was the original idea and it, and it just grew. It grew from a down and dirty this was the description. This was the pitch. This is a down and dirty television show. We're not going to do the pomp and circumstances. We're not going to do the lighting packages that we do in the major arenas. This is going to be raw. It's going to be gritty. It's going to be dirty. It's just going to be wrestling. This Mother's Day and Father's Day, look no further for the perfect gift than paintyourlife.com. It's worked for me every time, and when I say every time, I mean it. I've used paintyourlife.com to bring tears to the eyes of my mom, my dad, even my father-in-law. And right now I'm ordering one for my mother-in-law, all from paintyourlife.com. My mother-in-law's life is her dog, Missy. And this year, my wife and I knew exactly what to get my mother-in-law for mother's day, a painting of Missy. It really is that simple too. All we needed was a, a picture from our phone. Boom. We're up and running. You see paintyourlife.com 
can really create a hand-painted portrait to fit almost any budget. And it's the perfect gift for your mother, your father, or both. I've used it, as I said, on almost every person in my life. I've given these to my wife. I've given it to my cousin, my mom, my dad, my father-in-law. If I'm looking to give a truly meaningful, personable gift, I know the paintyourlife.com has my back and they're going to make it easy. You can go ahead and start the entire process in less than five minutes. And what's really cool about paintyourlife.com is they can even combine photos. Maybe you want to put two people who never met in one of your favorite vacation spots. You can do that. Just upload the photos. Bam. You're good to go. Maybe grandpa never got to meet his grandson with paintyourlife.com. That can become a reality. You can put people and places together. Even if they've never been there, you pick the artist, you pick the medium. Do you want oil, acrylic, watercolor, charcoal? You can even go ahead and pick out an awesome frame. The whole process to get started, as I said, takes less than five minutes and you can actually get your painting in as little as two weeks, but you work hand in hand with the artist to get every detail. Perfect. If you're looking to get those waterworks going to have your mom or your dad tear that paper and just almost be overcome with emotion. That's what I got. And I've never gotten that reaction to a gift card. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at paintyourlife.com. There's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded, guaranteed. And right now as a limited time offer, get 20% off your painting. That's right. 20% off and free shipping. Now to get this special offer, just text the word wrestle to 87204. That's wrestle to 87204. Text wrestle to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And then we debuted and he wanted it to be glamorous and, uh, you know, showy. Um, we're in a ballroom in New York for God's sakes. It's gotta be, there were so many different ideas. You ever seen wrestling at the chase? Yes. Okay. For those that don't know, wrestling at the chase was a, a famous wrestling event, uh, wrestling television show that took place in St. Louis and it was at the chase hotel. They used to have tables around the ring and people would sit there in, in tuxedos or, you know, uh, their suits and their, their best. And they would eat dinner while the wrestling matches took place. We talked about recreating wrestling at the chase and having dinner tables and having people being served an elegant meal throughout the show. We talked about this being a black tie affair so that everyone that came in was wearing a tuxedo, at least dressed in a suit and a tie, you know, your Sunday best come to Monday night raw. We were trying to make it different in every aspect. Now, while that may work once, I don't think that you were going to get wrestling fans to wear a tuxedo every Monday night, especially when you're playing the same venue every Monday night to dress in a tuxedo or a suit 
to come to the wrestling matches. Yeah, that's a little different for sure. So let's talk about, um, the idea behind the Manhattan center, because I'm sure when Vince sees the balcony and whatnot, he has to be enamored with the way this will look on television, right? Loved it. He absolutely loved the look and loved the architecture and the, just the historic pomp and circumstance. Who else is walking the building with you guys? Is it just you two? Is Kevin Dunn there? Who else tags along? It was, uh, me, Vince, Pat, uh, Kevin was with us. Nelson Swegler was with us. Um, Basil DeVito was with us. And maybe a few others, but those are the ones that I definitely remember coming through and walking with us. Cause we looked at, we looked at the Paramount. We looked at the Manhattan center and those, once he saw the Manhattan center, he was over, it was done. I know that, you know, this is the WWF show, but didn't TNA run in the Manhattan center. Do you have any idea how that came about? Yes, I do. The, the, and that was after I was gone, but it came about from Steve Taylor, who was longtime photographer and also production manager for the WWE works at Madison square garden. He is the one who orchestrated everything with Hulk Hogan to do the, the Madison square garden, Hulk Hogan press conference for TNA. And by that time, WWE had no desire to run the Manhattan center or any of that stuff. But, uh, Hogan had initially made that contact to, to get them in there. It's, uh, it's sort of fun to look at just the layout and sort of compare and contrast it with the Hammerstein ballroom. You ran both. Did you prefer one over the other? Um, I thought, yeah, I thought Hammerstein just had a cooler look to it. Right. Just because of the, just all that, the balcony, it just looked cool. But Manhattan center still is going to have that place because you, you have that brutal seven floor ride in the rickety elevator. It was an experience. <laughs> it was down dirty and an experience in the Manhattan center. You know, I'm glad you mentioned the, uh, the elevator again, because we've heard a lot of talk that setting up the ring was a real challenge because everything had to be put on this elevator and brought up all the floors, almost one piece at a time. What sort of extra layer of preparation or stress was added by this not being on the ground floor? Well, the argument was made that because we don't have to, we don't have to run a bunch of cable and we don't have nearly as much set up as we would normally in an arena with the television production end that we could deal with the little extra stress and the little extra time of loading the ring in this damn elevator and taking it up one at a time. They didn't have a big freight elevator. They had just the gigantic and they were big, but they were passenger elevators and they were slow. So once you got it off that, you still had steps. You had to go up and down. It wasn't, it wasn't a, um, wasn't a friendly building to run for big sets. Do you remember anybody on the television side griping about this? God, everybody griped about 
because <laughs> it was a pain in the ass. It wasn't your normal and you didn't have nearly as much control because of the unions in New York and not just the unions in New York. You had a, an in-house production team that ran everything at the Manhattan center. So you're, you're having to combat them. You're bringing in your own people to run a lot of stuff, but you still have to work with the folks within the venue. So it, it, it could, it could get tough sometimes. Do you remember a conversation or hearing of conversations with USA about how the format was going to change from primetime wrestling to raw and it going to be a live show? What was, what was that conversation like? They, they loved the live show aspect of it. And they loved the fact that they weren't just going to be looking the same as our syndicated product anymore. At that point, we had been really doing the majority of matches on primetime were coming from the beautifully lit, perfect, uh, TV tapings. We were doing more and more for cable or for primetime only on the road when we did our syndicated tapings. So everything looked the same. It just was so precise and, and brightly lit and perfect and everything. So the idea that USA is going to get something different and they're going to get live and they're going to get new, that really excited them. They, they love that. Uh, let's dig a little deeper on the rumor and innuendo. Uh, Meltzer first mentioned raw when he reported it in the December 14th, 92 observer. And he says that to combat the declining television ratings, he expected some format changes during the early part of next year. He says primetime wrestling will undergo a change starting with the January 11th show. Although I'm not clear of the details. The following week, he would report the WWF did make a few announcements regarding the schedule starting in January of 93 on the USA network. The two hour Monday night program and format will be a thing of the past. The show, which for years had been called primetime wrestling, which saw its ratings decline severely over the past few months to its lowest levels ever will change its name and format. The show will be a one hour broadcast starting at 9 PM Eastern called WWF Monday night raw. Supposedly the show will be aired live and unedited, similar to the old Memphis television show, at least in some cases, such as every third Monday, that's clearly impossible. For example, on Monday, the 25th of January, the entire crew will be taping television in San Jose and a 9 PM Eastern slot will be 6 PM. And obviously they aren't starting a house show that early. So I think that brings up a good point. A couple of weeks in, you guys have to sort of call an audible because you're on the West coast. So that would have been one of those episodes that you put in the can and you just sort of kayfabe that it's live. Right. We would, we would just pre-tape it the, the week before we would do two shows. Was there any sort of, uh, hesitation to saying something's live when it's really not? I don't think we ever did say it was live when it wasn't live. Okay. Uh, on the December 28th observer Meltzer would write the Monday night USA network show will air live from nine to 10 PM from the Manhattan center, a 600 seat theater in Manhattan. It will be similar to a center stage setup, except all the matches will air live. McMahon and Randy Savage will be doing the announcing. It's an experiment because the building is only booked through February. The first taping is the 11th while on the 18th, they'll tape two shows because on the 25th, they can air live because the crew will be in San Jose that night. Go ahead. 
Well, I was also going to say, you know, and, and again, I just love when people jump to conclusions and assume things. We actually looked at having a separate crew doing a live show in Manhattan to continue the live Monday Night Raw while we were taping in California. So that that was an option, but it wasn't a feasible. I mean, yes, we could have done it, but why? Because you're losing a lot of your stars that you need for syndication to do three weeks of syndication wherever the hell else you were. So that was why the decision was made. We'll just tape one on the way there. So 600 seats, let's talk about that for a minute because Meltzer reports it as a 600 seat theater. Do you remember what you guys thought the capacity was for that? Uh, that sounds about right. We were, we were looking for something in the 500 to a thousand range and we built, they came to us and they said, um, we've got so many in the balcony. We can put so many on the floor, but we have these bleachers that we can bring in and we can build up on the stage itself. So that's where the cameras were, where they shot into all those bleachers off to the, to the left of the Monday night raw entrance. They built all those up for us as well, but we were looking for a small intimate setting. How much were tickets back then? Do you recall? Probably in the 10 to $15 range. So let's assume they're $10. You've got 6,000 coming in rent on the building. Can't be a nickel less than 10,000, probably what? 25. What's realistic. Just freestyle. I pro guess. Probably around 10,000, but then you've got, you know, obviously the cost of the labor and all the crew and the staff. Oh, it's and, expensive as yeah, shit. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the name Monday night raw. Where does that come from? The working name for the show for the longest time was down, dirty, gritty, raw, um, <laughs> television show. So whenever anybody was explaining this new show, they're explaining this new li live was to be a part of the show and it's, it's down, it's dirty, it's gritty, it's raw. And every time that we would explain it to somebody and they would want to glitz it up. We would go back. No, it's got to be raw, man. No, just, just down and dirty. So raw down and dirty was the descriptors used in every thing that we did. Finally, we were at Vince's pool, dark outside, getting ready to eat dinner. And Basil DeVito was over at the house. We need a name. What are we going to call this show? And as we kept coming back to, we, we were all calling it raw. He says, why don't we just call it raw? And then Vince said Monday night raw. And that's how it was born. But it was, it was the, it was the term used to describe the damn thing. For all those weeks leading up to it, to where finally it's like, well, shit, what we, we never named it when in reality we had, and then it was like, well, just call it raw. The uh, final primetime wrestling, of course, aired on January 4th. It did a 2.2 rating and, um, this had to be quite an adjustment where the boys, 
looking forward to this live format and moving away from, from prime time, or was this something they dreaded because now they're working on a Monday? They were already working on Mondays, but they, I think that <laughs> the dread was the thought of looping through the North Northeast every single Monday and the fear that, Oh my God, every Monday I'm going to be in New York. Ah, that was probably their frustration for Vince. It was great because it was a 40 minute drive from the house and for the studio and all of that, we didn't have any of that airfare, any of that travel. So certain things canceled it out. Do you remember any of the, which of the guys in particular was sort of dreading being, being in New York every Monday? I don't know that anyone in particular dreaded it. It just was an overall feeling. New York is not always the, um, easiest place to navigate, especially when it's, uh, snowing its ass off. Exactly. And it's, it's tough to park and, uh, hotels are expensive. You just go right on down the list. Um, let's talk a little bit about the original motto for the show, uncooked, uncut and uncensored. Is that a Vince McMahonism? It feels like something he would have really been trying to push. They can't. Yes, it was. And it was a lot of, from a lot of different people trying to describe what this was going to be. It was, you know, uh, uncooked, uncut, uncensored, unpredictable, unbelievable. Uh huh. And any un you could possibly think of, we would throw in there from time to time. But he wanted the feeling of spontaneity, and this was new. There was no other live wrestling on television. I guess we should, uh, this is as good a time as any. Let's talk about Rob Bartlett. Uh, This is something we get a lot of questions about when we post this on Facebook. Everybody wants to know who the hell this guy was, where did he come from, and why is he here with Vince and Randy, who probably have this covered. What's the rationale? How does this come to be? I want someone in the news. I want someone who's topical and funny. Rob was a comedian and he was a uh, DJ in New York at the time. So in New Yorkers knew who the hell Rob Bartlett was. He, he was all over New York. He was all over radio. He's all over television in New York. And he was a pretty, pretty well-known comedian as well. So Vince wanted to put someone, uh, a fish out of water in the commentating booth and play by play booth to ask the questions to be basically Conrad Thompson, to look at it from a fan perspective, ask the questions that the people at home are wondering and hopefully provide some humor to the broadcast. Rob, uh, is a great guy, funny as hell. I mean, he's, he's one of those people that you sit and talk to. It's like Casio kid. You just laugh when you talk to him cause he cracks you up. Right. But then it, it went from having Rob be Rob to producing Rob. And I'm not a comedian. I, I, I don't, I can't give a comedian jokes and write his stuff. I can tell him how to do wrestling stuff, but not funny, haha, comedian stuff. 
I guess we should mention the reason he was on the radio in New York and was such a big part of that culture at the time was Imus in the morning. Did Vince listen to Don Imus? Yeah. Was Vince, um, you know, obviously the New York ratings war wasn't just television. It was also radio and Howard Stern was a big deal. Don Imus was a big deal. There's lots of radio in the eighties and nineties that people are competing for. And that's back when radio was a really, really big deal. Do you remember there being any sort of, uh, debate about Don Imus or Howard Stern amongst the office staff? Because it feels like Howard Stern is more Vince's deal about using them in that spot. Yeah. Not really because Vince had met Rob and really liked Rob. So the fact that Vince knew Rob and had been around him and had had interaction with him and the way that Rob was able to pick up the vibes of the, he'd done a charity event with him and, and Rob had really picked up the vibe of the room and just owned the room at the time. Vince fell in love with him, got to know Rob. So he didn't look any further than that. It was, I've got the guy. We should mention too, that Rob had done stand up on Letterman Conan. He had done a half hour special on MTV. He'd been featured on VH one. Uh, he'd worked all the casinos out in Vegas and Atlantic city. So he did have a little bit of notoriety. Uh, but I think a lot of wrestling fans look back and say, what the hell is this? Because most wrestling fans didn't think he did a great job after you guys have, you know, your first episode under your belt. What was the feeling about how Rob did as a wrestling commentator? Mother's day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from blue Nile from timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones. Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about... How to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. We didn't want him to be a wrestling commentator, and that was the thing. I think wrestling fans were looking for a, an analysis guy like Jesse Ventura or Bruno, and they wanted their straight wrestling. We didn't want that. We wanted the off-the-cuff, um, silly questions and, and silly comments that he did. So I think everybody was pleased with his first outing. He was he was uncomfortable. Eric, you know, this was the first time that a lot of these guys were doing live television. Right. So it was, it was uncomfortable and it was a feeling out process that we hadn't really gone through. We had done a few run throughs in the studio in Stanford to prepare. But other than that, man, they were thrown, they were just thrown into the fire. The show starts off with Sean Mooney on the streets of New York, welcoming viewers to Monday night raw. 
And then he stops Bobby Heenan from entering the building, telling him he's been replaced and that the building was full. So this is one of the first times that we see you guys starting to build like skits into the show. Who's producing stuff like this? The, that stuff, we, a lot of it, we pre-taped some of it. We pre-taped the night before some of it. We just did earlier that night. That was, uh, myself and Vince, the, the idea, there were so many different ideas that we had for raw that we wanted it to be different. We wanted the man on the street. Vince didn't want the traditional interview. He didn't want Gene Okerlund asking questions and doing traditional interviews. He wanted a feel of New York similar to Saturday Night Live. He wanted a feel of New York that would give you a taste. And he that's, that's the man on the street. There was an old skit from Saturday Night Live that they had a man on the street. and Different things would happen out on the street as, as we'll get into later on. So that was the original setting, man. Hey, yeah, we are live. Anything can happen. We, we would set things up to screw up so that you could laugh, go, Oh my God, that was live. That wasn't supposed to happen. And we would stay on guys longer to let them drop out of character and, and just different things like that, that, that made it kind of must watch TV to where you say, man, this isn't that slick, perfectly edited, polished show, man. They're, they're actually live, live. And, and man, sometimes these guys just screw up. That was the buzz we were looking for. The first match that we see on Monday night, raw was a squash where Yokozuna laid waste to Coco beware. Um, and it's <laughs> right away. We're treated to some interesting Bartlett commentary. As soon as Coco gets in the ring, Bartlett says he always wondered what happened to Gary Coleman, which I don't know. Um, uh, and there's ceremonial flower girls in the ring who are giving Yokozuna flowers. When he entered the ring, I always wondered why was that discontinued? That was a cool presentation on TV. Oh, I thought it was really cool, but it just costly and, and trying to find girls in every single town because we that's what we would do. And it just got too costly. And after a while you've seen it, you've seen it. Yeah. You kept the whole thing going for a long time with Godfather. Hey, that's Interesting. different. Interesting. Well, you don't have flower money, but you got hoe money. It's a different thing. Yeah. Big time. And if you'd like to have some real money, you go to save with Bruce.com. Am I right? Hell yeah, especially if you want to buy that new house that you've been waiting for. We can definitely help you out over at SaveWithBruce.com. Get your New Year's resolution started right. It's probably something like save money, get out of debt, and lose weight. Well, Bruce and I can help with two of the three over at SaveWithBruce.com. NMLS number 65084. Um, let's talk a little bit about the uh, the ring girls who walk around the ring holding up the signs. Whose idea was that? Raw girls. That was Vince. You know, boxing had its its round girls. Well, we were going to have our raw girls. And Vince wanted to have these beautiful fitness models that would come out and hold up raw signs. But he didn't want, you know, obviously we didn't have rounds. So the signs would be some quirky little comment about raw. And it was say raw and uh so is your mom you know stupid shit like that would have these sayings on the 
signs, but it's just a chance to see some beautiful women walk around the ring, a la the ring girls in boxing. One sentence ago, you said that you didn't have money for flower girls. No, you asked why we didn't continue. And I said, <laughs> yeah, it just didn't. I'm just busting balls. So yeah. who, um, do you help pick out the ring girls or who's helping pick out the ring girls? Now I'm trying to, th- okay, this, <laughs> this became a big issue. Um, I'm pretty sure. I think she was there by this time. Uh, Lisa Wolf okay. was big time in the ring girls, but yes, we did help pick them out. Vince wanted fitness models and girls that had some acting and dancers and fitness models. It feels like the XFL cheerleader interview is about to happen. Uh, Hey, one of, one of them is a damn state representative now in Connecticut. One of the original raw girls. Yes. Well, tell us who Themis. And I heard, uh, it's a Greek name. One of our listeners asked a question about it and I looked it up. I was like, oh my God, good for her. How about that. So strut that ass on raw. There's a future in it. Um, you know, it. following a commercial break, a pre-recorded Bobby Heenan promo aired where he talked about the upcoming debut of the narcissist. And, um, I, I don't know why, but I enjoyed the way Vince always tried to pronounce this word. And, uh, I, we've talked about Vince on commentary a lot and I'm ho- hopefully we will a little more here today, but. I love that you're using this as an opportunity to introduce new characters and Lex Luger is obviously going to be a central figure on the show. And we talk about his run with the Lex express and our archives at something to wrestle.com. But when you guys start formatting your very first show is the idea Yokozuna is our top guy. So let's get him out there pretty quickly or he's our top heel. And now let's introduce a new character. I mean, are you trying to pull out all the stops sort of like the way we saw nitro try to do somewhat? Yeah. We wanted to present a a completely different product as much as we could with a lot of the, with a lot of the same guys. The idea behind raw was that it would be different than the syndicated product. Well, it's different because it's live. We had different camera angles there was just a necessity because of the way that the room was set up. We had less cameras. So you saw things shot in a different way. Probably didn't notice it as much at home, but when you compared the two side by side, you could see this is definitely a different product. We also wanted to give the illusion, hence the man on the street and not doing the, uh, set interviews we wanted to have the illusion that cameras were everywhere, even though we had less cameras and just more gaga going on in general. One of the original ideas when we were conceptualizing all of this was to utilize legends, okay, to, to go back and, and take some old WWF legends and maybe have one a month. So, One month you have Jimmy Snuka come in and he has a match for good time. Okay. Good feel good sake. And then the next month you have captain Lou Albano appear and then you have Greg Valentine come in and work a match. And then Bob Backlund comes in and has a match, but you only, that's the only place you would see him is on raw. They didn't come in full time. It would be one off deals, just one off special 
raw events and just different things like that. It feels sort of fun as a little footnote to history though, that the very first nitro has the debut of Lex Luger jumping ship. And the very first raw is a tease for him making a debut as the narcissist, which I think is pretty fun. Yep. Um, the Steiners beat the executioners in another squash and doink appeared in the crowd during the match with his arm in a sling. And we've done a full episode on doink in the archives, of course, but during this match, I think Vince mentions that a Buffalo bill is going to be joining the world wrestling federation that doesn't wind up happening. Uh, it seems pretty strange for Vince to announce that someone's coming and then it's never mentioned again and he never shows up. Do you remember anything about that and what fell apart? Well, no, nothing. He just expressed interest in coming and his football career was coming to an end. So he was topical at the time. So let's get his name out there and get people talking and get some buzz. Uh, who are the executioners? The guys who are working with the Steiners here. Uh, that was Dwayne Gill and Barry Hardy. Uh, back outside, Bobby Heenan is dressed up as an old woman claiming to be Rob Bartlett's mother and saying she had to get in the building. Sean Mooney was not fooled. This is one of my favorite memories from the first Raw is seeing Bobby Heenan dressed up in drag. Did Bobby just travel with this stuff in his bag all the time? You think? Sure. <laughs> Don't you? Uh, no. Sean, Come on. Sean Mooney is somebody who we haven't talked about a ton here on the program. And Sean has a podcast over at MLWradio.com that we can recommend. It's called Prime Time with Sean Mooney. Uh, if you haven't already, check it out. Bruce did an appearance there maybe a month or two back that I recommend. Let's talk a little bit about Sean Mooney, though, as a sidebar here. How does his deal with the WWE come to an end? Sean had a great opportunity come up to do uh an anchor spot. I think it was in Boston mass and he just couldn't turn it down, man. It was his dream. He he'd come from the news world and come into our world. And now he had an opportunity to, it was, uh, it was either Boston or New Jersey, but he had, he had a spot as an anchor that came available and just too good to, to pass down, pass up. And when he breaks that news to Vince, it goes well and everybody's on good terms. Yeah, we were happy for him. Um, we didn't talk about how the end of Rob Bartlett happens. How does that come to be where you guys part ways with Rob? It was taking its toll on Rob, uh, as far as all of his different appearances and different things that he had to be up late on Monday night. And I don't know that Rob was necessarily, uh, I don't, nobody's used to the abuse, but prepared for the type of abuse that he would take from the wrestling community that didn't appreciate <laughs> his commentary. Yeah. And it's funny when you talk about, you know, talk about Rob, talk about Sean Mooney, some of the other names that were considered, you had mentioned Howard Stern and Imus, but even before Vince was like, I've got it, Rob Bartlett, you know, there was talk and I only was talk. It didn't go any further than internally of, you know, what if we had Bob Costas wow. on this show? What if we had Marv Albert? Because Vince was looking for that Howard Cosell right. character to be on this show. He, he loved Cosell, he loved, uh, Don Meredith, you know, Jr. is a direct Vince wanted his Don Meredith. 
and that's what, how Vince saw Jr. It seems like, uh, an opportunity for you guys to give someone else the rub, which is why I mentioned maybe somebody in that radio market that was so competitive, they probably would have jumped at the chance to be on TV every week uh, or someone from the show. Maybe Uh, in the ring, we see Vince McMahon interviewing razor Ramon and they're building towards razors title match with Bret Hart at the Royal rumble. We haven't really talked about why Vince wanted to make himself a commentator on this show. He had sort of been driving primetime wrestling for a little while, but was anybody else ever considered to do commentary or was it always Vince and Randy? It was always Vince and Randy because when you're talking about doing it in New York, we didn't have to fly anybody in. He was there. He was the lead commentator on Monday night raw. So it felt it was just natural. He'd be the lead commentator here. You just said he was the lead commentator on Monday Night Raw, so it's not oh, to be the target. lead commentator. I here. meant superstars of wrestling. Okay. Um, Tataka then does a promo for the Headlock on Hunger. We haven't talked about Headlock on Hunger a whole lot. Do you have um, any recollection of how that came to be? Just me. It was, it was something that we were a big part of. And, you know, Special Olympics, Headlock on Hunger, there were a lot of things. Make a wish that. WWF was very passionate about and headlock on hunger was one of them. So we like to like to support them. I'm looking forward to the day we get to do a Tatanka episode. And I know that, uh, a big listener of the show, Mr. Arky Shea is looking forward to Tatanka. Everybody has a favorite wrestler. And I found the guy who says Tatanka is his favorite wrestler. Do you have a Tatanka impression? Maybe that battle cry. This is real life fellows. Uh, next up, we've got Shawn Michaels and max moon for the intercontinental title. Uh, it's the longest match of the night, but still somewhat of a squash. I guess, uh, Bartlett is uh, pretty annoying in this match. He's doing a Mike Tyson impersonation. Uh, and he keeps doing it as Vince is just feeding into it, which probably sounds as forced as some of my requests for impressions here. What'd you think of max moon here? Max Moon was Paul Diamond, and man, you know the match was good. Here's two. Here's two guys broke in together, uh, both in San Antonio. And funny little tidbit: back when Max Moon, Paul Diamond, and Shawn Michaels were breaking in, people all thought Paul Diamond was going to be the star. Right. So they had history together, and they had been a tag team together as well through different periods of their career, but I thought it was a pretty damn good match. It's funny. I was looking at some of the comments on, uh, Facebook over at something to wrestle and people thought that it was Sean and Conan. No, Conan was not Max moon. Yeah. I think people get into, Hey, we, we made the outfit for him and then assume that he was there for that, but that just didn't happen. Um, what I found interesting about this Shawn Michaels match is that Sean doesn't use the super kick as a finisher. He's using his side suplex move and, uh, it doesn't really feel like a strong finishing move. And it's kind of funny because Sean did the super kick right before the suplex. Obviously he's trying to work some things out, but do you remember a piece of advice that maybe somebody gave him? Why did he come down and just decide, okay, it's the super kick. I'm scrapping the suplex. Okay. Because the super kick looks so damn good that when he did it, he's now he's got to pick a guy up 
from his kick to do his finish. Right. Just eliminate that. Do the kick. Boom. Be done. It's hard to imagine Shawn Michaels with anything other than the super kick as a finisher. Now Uh, it it really and truly is. Then we get a quick commercial for the new Saturday morning show mania. You guys are launching a lot of new shows here in the first quarter. What was the uh, thinking behind the show mania Uh, live got to do live and Saturday morning mania was a live show from the studios in Stanford. Uh, we had Stephanie Wyand, who was a new hire, uh, Charlie men, who was another new hire. And Charlie had come to us from, uh, San Francisco, I believe, but it was just a way to introduce new young talent and kind of create our Saturday morning show to, to, to create and or recreate what they had with the rock and wrestling cartoon back in the day. Um, let's talk a little bit about Gene Okerlund because we do a cutaway here for the Royal rumble report, which at this time is two weeks away. We've got pre-recorded promos from Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty hyping their match. And we run down the 30 superstars who are in the rumble and we have Mr. Perfect doing a promo talking about how he's going to win the match. And one from Mr. Fuji and Yokozuna, Hacksaw Jim Duggan. These report segments were always great, but it does feel like a bygone era here. At this point, you know, you said a, a minute ago, we didn't want Mean Gene doing an interview, but he's here doing the report. Is it fair to say that Vince had sort of fallen out of love with Gene? No, not really. But, you know, the other thing, and I fought against this, but it was... You know, there's got some things have to stay the same. It was the way that we did. It was like our event centers and it was the way. Yes. And it was the way that we promoted the pay-per-views going forward. And, And it's still, you know, still in its infancy stages, but I did not really care for using the event center, uh, style or the Royal rumble report, as it was called in this show would like to have just done something else. I love those old, uh, event centers, those reports, the cutaways, it takes me back to the childhood. I, I wish they would do them now. Um, outside, once again, Sean Mooney approaches a Jewish man who is uh, telling him he has to get inside to see the building. His nephew is inside Rob Bartlett. Sean Mooney, of course, figures out it's Bobby Heenan. Uh, whose idea is Bobby coming back as all these different characters. This is great stuff. Is this something that Vince books? <laughs> We we were talking about what would happen and Bobby came up with the ideas like what if what if I came in drag? What if I came in as a Hasidic Jew? What if I you know came one of them was to come as a cop and go to you know arrest Sean Mooney and all this different things. So that part of it was Bobby Heenan and it just kind of grew and manifested itself as time went on. On commentary, we see uh, McMahon, Savage, and Bartlett do the tagline of the show, uncut, uncooked, and uncensored, which maybe we should make our tagline. Um, and then they talk about what happened this past weekend on WWF Superstars, and McMahon even dropped the line this past weekend on the WWF Network, which I think is pretty awesome that he was calling it the WWF Network even back then. You know it. Uh, they play a video from superstars showing Kamala being verbally abused by Harvey Whippleman and Kim Chi, and then being saved by slick slick gets decked 
And then Kamala turns face and turns on Kim Chi as uh Whippleman escapes. Uh, it feels like this is a, another era where we're, we still have Kamala here. Um, is this 1993, 94 era, like the epitome of growing pains in the WWF? <laughs> yeah, a little bit, but this was the turning of Kamala Babyface, which to me was the most entertaining that Kamala had ever been. And I'm not taking anything away from Kamala's heel run because man, when Kamala went around and did the territories early on in his career, he was all the way live. People believed Kamala cause he was huge and he lived the gimmick. So this to me was some of the most fun stuff that we ever did with Kamala and, and the part that I loved about his career the most. Hypothetically, if his uh, shorts would have ripped during that skit and he would have been exposed, what would that have sounded like? Oh, God. Uh, the Hogan 87 uh, episode is in our archives. And uh, when he's working with Kamala, there is a hilarious bit in there from Bruce, if you don't know what we're talking about. Uh, then we go to the main event of Raw. It's The Undertaker and Damian Demento. How fun is that? Damian Demento's in the main event of Raw. The match goes about 10, I'm sorry, two minutes. And then it's over with the tombstone as Demento's WWF career is coming to a close. He's going to be released, uh, in October of 93. He worked the Indies as we've talked about here on the show before as Mondo clean, but Damian Demento is one of those really interesting. Uh, yeah. Sort of had to be their characters. Has he not? Yeah, he is, but you know, he was ahead of his time. Uh, Damian Demento to me was one of the perfect characters for the WWF at the time. He, he was a larger than life character, um, lived his gimmick and for whatever reason, just did not connect with the audience. They didn't buy it. Didn't care. Didn't want to know. Following a commercial break, doink the clown is interviewed by Vince McMahon. He's been all over this show. This is his third appearance. This brings crush down and doing squirts crush with a water gun. And then crush proceeds to chase him around the ring, but doesn't catch him. And the show concludes with Sean Mooney, finally telling Heenan he can go inside. And then the copyright info is shown to end the broadcast. And that's the end of our very first Monday night raw at the end of the night. How was it received by Vince? What were his notes? What did everybody think about the first edition? Everybody was excited. I think everyone thought it was a success. It was a good show. It was a fun show. It was different. We still had a lot of kinks to work out. Sometimes the communication between the truck and me down at ringside could be a little challenging, but it worked and it was, it was a fun show and it was good. You know, it's interesting when you think about it, looking at where raw is now, we went from a two hour format on Monday nights with primetime to where Vince thought, you know, we can only do an hour. We don't want to do more than an hour. We don't want to overexpose anything. And the show on Monday night should only be one hour. So that was, you know, it's interesting when you look back 25 years ago, that an hour was just right. Well, the third hour these days is because USA is paying big money for it. 
what was, and the, I'm all for it. What was the relationship like with USA? Were you guys receiving television rights fees even here for Monday night raw? We were, and it wasn't anything like what it became in, in later years, but we had been receiving rights fees for years, you know, for prime time and all American and all of the shows that we had on the USA network, but it wasn't, it wasn't anything like what it became. And that was the reason that we were losing money on prime time because what we were getting in wasn't balancing out what it was costing us to produce it. So that's my question. Raw is going to actually become more expensive to produce than primetime. At some point, because the show is live, does Vince go back and, and sort of renegotiate that deal with and try to get some more money out of USA to offset the costs? Not until it was time to renegotiate. And the, because again, the thought was original, original thought for doing all this was by doing a live event, you're going to get revenue from the house. When we limit it to only 600 people, you ain't going to get that kind of revenue to offset those costs. Then when you rent an expensive building with expensive production <laughs> rentals and everything else, yeah, it became a losing proposition. But Vince felt it was an investment to get it going. And then once we prove it to be a success, then he could go back in and ask for a bigger rights fee. How long do you think Vince let Raw run in the red? Probably the first year. Wow. Uh, so were there any tweaks as we head into week two on Monday night raw from week one, were there any lessons learned in that first taping where you said, okay, now we got it next time. We won't do this. We'll do that. Do you remember something like that? Vince felt that, uh, you know, I needed to be more on top and I, you know, I'm going on my stuff that I needed to be more on top of him and getting topical information into the show. And so it was always a constant argument with Vince and I, because I didn't want to talk about the news, but we would, we would sit with the USA today newspaper with the format and read the headlines and write in where we're going to talk about in Iowa yesterday, (laughs) councilman Jim Noble. It's like, nobody cares, right? Nobody cares. And so I wouldn't feed that shit to him. I purposely would leave it out because I didn't think it fit. Kevin didn't think it fit. Vince was the only one that thought it fit. So I would take an ass chewing at the end of the night as to why I didn't feed him more topical stuff. My feeling was Rob Bartlett was doing that with his commentary. And that was about as outside as we needed to go. So it was a little bit, it was just a difference in philosophy. As far as the the in-ring action, we thought all that was on point. We liked the fact that we had Doink kind of involved all through the night, the little running skits with Bobby Heenan. So we usually had one to two threads that we decided we were going to get in through each show. So that was the Bobby Heenan and Doink, you know, pranks and shit coming out in the in the crowd throughout the night. We didn't we didn't want raw to become like superstars or challenge. That was still in our opinion, that was still our bread and butter. That was the syndicated shows that everybody got that promoted the house shows. That was still the bread and butter. This is before television was creating this kind of revenue that it does now. So it was an exposure tool, but we wanted it to be more competitive 
than superstars and challenge, but not necessarily issue and, and angle oriented. We figured, you know, we'll do, we'll do some here, but not a lot. In the main event of the very first Raw, which is Undertaker and Demento, Vince mentions that next week you're going to see Mr. Perfect and Papa Shango. Instead, the next week, Red Rooster, well, Terry Taylor, is working with Mr. Perfect, not Papa Shango. Do you remember why the change was made? Yeah, probably just not wanting to beat Papa Shango and looking at it, and it's a way to get perfect over. Plus, we had you know the issues coming up with Ric Flair and trying to figure out what the hell we were going to do. Yeah, so I guess we should mention that that towards the end of '92, you guys take the belt off of Rick, put it on Bret Hart, and now here in early '93, um, Rick is ready to go home, and you guys are, are going to. S- work into a storyline, a reason for him to be written off of television, which of course involves him working in a, a loser leaves town match with Mr. Perfect. So during this Terry Taylor, Mr. Perfect match, Flair comes down and distracts Mr. Perfect. And it looks like, uh, Taylor is going to be able to, uh, take over, but instead he falls victim to the perfect plex. What's the rationale behind putting perfect and flair together in this loser leaves town situation. They had history and Kurt was, you know, here, here we are looking to do something with Kurt, let him get the rub. It was, it was the easiest and cleanest way to move into you get, you get Rick out of there. Rick goes on his way and you boost perfect stock a little bit more by being the one to send Rick on his way. Was there ever consideration to let's just take him off TV and let him fade away? Or, I mean, the old school way of thinking is, Hey, you got a big star here. Let's let him give the rub to a guy on the way out. Yeah. We wanted him to give the rub to, to perfect. And you know, Rick was hundred percent on board with sure. it and was like, Oh man, I'll, I'll put him over. I'll put, you know, I'll put Steve Lombardi over and it worked. Uh, next up, we get Vince in the ring, introducing Bret Hart and they're going to do a promo about his match with razor Ramon. Of course, razor had, um, beat up Owen Hart and then talked trash about Stu. and, uh, we're done with the promo there. The next match is Marty Jannetty and Glenn Ruth. Uh, Ruth would later become headbanger thrasher, but of course he looks totally different here. And Shawn Michaels calls in during the match and he says that he's the better wrestler of the rockers. Marty's nothing but a simpleton. Of course, Marty ends up winning the match with a rocker dropper that doesn't paralyze anybody about five minutes in, um, the, the calling in was an aspect of the show that I appreciated. Whose idea was that? It was another way to get talent on the show without having to fly them in and be able to get them exposure and allow them to cut a promo. So it was something that we talked about and I forget who had done. It. I want to say Pat was like talking about, ah, how about when they get this guy and they get him on the phone, we can put him on the phone during the match and have him do commentary while they're watching at home. That doesn't work as well because of the delay, but it definitely did work as far as them getting to be able to cut their promos live on TV. Kind of fun considering what you just said about the threads in the shows, because the thread of the second show is at the start of the show, the repo man steals Randy Savage's hat. And later on in the show, uh, Sean Mooney is interviewing repo man. Who's cutting a promo on Randy Savage. 
And, uh, then Savage threatens a Monday night raw hangover. This is all over a hat. Eventually we see a rumble report from mean gene. And then Savage is outside with Sean Mooney looking for repo man and his fucking hat. Vince is on my head is cold. Uh huh. I mean, my hat. Freak out, freak out, macho hat. Where's my macho hat? Dig it. <laughs> Who booked this shit? This is the silliest shit ever. It's Monday Night Raw. It's uncut. Uncut. Unbelievable. Yeah. Dude, they're, they're feeding over a fucking cowboy hat. No, it's not just any cowboy hat. It's a macho hat. Uh, so as we cruise on down memory lane here on these early raws, the main event of the second raw is Ric Flair and El Matador Tito Santana. This is pretty fun stuff here because I don't know that Tito Santana may have ended a lot of raws, but I like that he did it with the nature boy, Ric Flair. Uh, Flair's in an argument with the ref and Vince says that Flair has problems with authority figures and, uh, which is kind of fun. Cause he'd be gone the very next week. Perfect comes down to the ring attacks Flair. They brawl and are separated by security. Uh, and the match ends. So after about six minutes, we come back from break. They're still brawling. Uh, and then Flair is interviewed by Vince and challenges perfect to a loser leaves town match the very next week. Of course, Mr. Perfect accepts and outside we go live to see as the show is coming to a close, the repo man steals Rob Bartlett's car. Is this repo man shit? The worst shit of 1993 Re, re, repo man. Repo man was fun. I didn't get the gimmick, but it could be fun. Sometimes Vince loved the gimmick. He's a repo man. He repossesses. He steals things. The next raw was also from the Manhattan center. It's the 25th. This one is taped though. It does a 2.6 rating and the repo man is once again, all over the fucking show. This time he says he's going to repossess Savage's career. Just like he did the hat. And he runs into the building. Uh, <laughs> it's just awful. It's a macho career. Dig it. Uh-huh. Give me my hat. I got more, but I want that one. Yeah. So since Savage is uh, going to be. his <laughs> 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 career, you oh, silly fuckers. So since Savage is working a match with the goddamn repo man, uh, who comes out with Savage's hat, they work about nine minutes. Of course, Savage wins with an elbow drop off the top. The hosts this week are Vince Heenan and Bartlett. And I never understood why anybody would have Heenan on payroll and not have him on commentary. He's gold. (laughs) So I I liked him here. What'd you think of the, the payoff of the Randy Savage repo man match? Gonna get the head on brother. I'm going to repossess your mask. Yeah. Uh, we we were trying, we were trying to create little issues and just little fun things for TV, just for raw, you know, the, the repo repossessing the hat, the macho hat, dig it. Uh, was only for raw, didn't cross over into anything on superstars or anywhere else. It was just little angles and issues that we could have on Monday night raw to make it unique. Kamala goes over the Brooklyn brawler next. And we go to the Royal rumble report. 
Uh, we show where, uh, Luger debuted razor was defeated by Brett to retain and Yoko won the rumble last eliminating savage. And now it's time for our main event. It's Ric Flair and Mr. Perfect in a loser leaves match, uh, which is pretty fun. During the show, we see Vince hyping the sci-fi channel and, uh, they have a pretty good match and I, I enjoyed the match. I thought it was one of the better matches of these early Raws that we're talking about. Uh, they go to a break in the middle of the match. When they come back, Flair is taking a foreign object out of his knee pad, nails perfect with it. Uh, and you can imagine what's coming here. Eventually it goes back and forth. We're ready to go home about 17 minutes in and Mr. Perfect nails the perfect plex to get the pin. And Rick is out of here. He has to leave the WWF and Bobby Heenan goes on a tirade that is bleeped out, which really added to the, uh, the realism. And since it was taped, uh, why not? Right. I thought, of this course. Was, I thought this was fun stuff and a great way to, uh, give raw a little oomph. I mean, it's certainly a much better match than what we saw in the main event two weeks prior with undertaker and Damian Demento. Easy tiger. Easy. No, this was a great match and Rick went out and per- perfect over like a million bucks. And you know, when people talk about, oh, Vince, this Vince, that, you know, Rick was not happy where he was. Rick had an opportunity to go back and Vince allowed him to go back. And Rick did the right thing on the way out anointing Mr. Perfect. And I just thought it was great on, on every single front. What do you remember about that conversation with Rick and Vince where I guess they just had like a a handshake gentleman's agreement that if he ever wanted to leave, he could. And then he goes and says, Hey Vince, you know, if I'm not going to be a top guy, I'm ready to go because it does feel like at this point they're going with a youth movement. And it was that quick too. And it was that quick and the decision made immediately and okay, let's do it tonight. And I was in the room when Rick called Arn Anderson to say, Hey, be sure and watch raw next, you know, next week it's loser leave town. And, uh, and I'm gone coming home. And that was it. I mean, it all happened that fast. After he loses to Mr. Perfect, he goes to the back, gathers his things. It feels like Rick's going to throw a giant party and, and celebrate the end of his WWF run. Do you remember him having a big shebang that night? Do you remember Rick ever not having a big shebang after, well, when the sun went down? <laughs> Yeah, Rick had a good time, man. We we all said our farewells and wished him wished him well in his future endeavors. Um, no heat on Rick at all, man. Everybody loved Rick, and it was a fun time. But yeah, he went and tore the place down. The next week, Raw does its best rating, 3.0. It's the highest rating for any regular cable show in more than 10 months. And Vince welcomes us in, and we're going to start our first match off with Tonka and Damian Demento. And there yes. were some, there were some, uh, <laughs> there was some crowd chance here for, we want flair. Was that expected? Is this the same group of fans who are really just smart New York fans and they know that Flair's really gone and they're sort of protesting here. Yes. And I love them because the, man, the New York fans, those Northeast fans, <sighs> you, first of all, you couldn't fool them. They told you what they thought and they were passionate. So I loved it. I, I loved it when you'd come out to that. Cause I would just chuckle. When we, uh, 
of course, Tatanka wins the match. Not that you give a shit. Um, but when we come back from the match, we are come back from the break. We see Vince in the ring and he introduces Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake. He's coming down the aisle, strutting and cutting with his shears. And Vince calls him one of the all-time greats in the World Wrestling Federation. Who booked Damn this right. Shit? What is this shit? Great guy. Loves the business. Uh, Vince comments on what a great ovation he received and says it must be nice to be back in the World Wrestling Federation after your uh, dreadful parasailing accident. And Brutus says the one reason I'm here tonight is to make a special announcement. I'm going to return to the WWF. And I'm ready to take on anyone. So Vince says the barber's back. Um, and he understands that it's risky, but he's explaining that just before the accident, his mother died of cancer. And shortly after that, his father passed away and to add insult to injury, his wife walked away and filed for divorce. So just as he's coming to terms with all this, a lady parasailing smashes her knees into his face and fractures his skull and they're getting over how difficult this surgery was and that one person was there to help him pull through. And that's Hulk Hogan. He says, Hogan's been here for him the whole time. When he comes out of surgery, when he takes the bandages off, the first thing he sees is the red and yellow and all the Hulkamaniacs are behind him. So Vince said with all that, it seems like he's taking a massive risk getting back in the ring. And he says he's got nothing left. So he reached out to the Hulkster for his opinion and Hulk said, go for it. So they're building towards a big angle here by really selling the parasailing accident. And I know we're going to cover this at some time in the future on a Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake episode, but this parasailing accident was no joke. And you guys are turning it into an angle here. There was some real concern that Brutus may never be able to work again. Right? Well, the initial moments of the parasailing accident and the, with the paramedics, there was real concern if he would even live right. through the damn thing. And they did major reconstruction of his face with plates. And I mean, it was a real, real bad deal, but he had, they had uh, built an apparatus that would fit around his face to protect his face in the ring. And Vince was convinced that this would kind of be, something that he could work in and we could have the best of all worlds. You can have Bruce, the barber beefcake, and you could also have a gimmick to sell. that would kind of be like the ultimate warrior masks and all this different stuff. But, uh, it was iffy. It was iffy at best. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, um, high energy because they're going to be out here next. And that's Owen Hart and Coco beware taking on iron Mike sharp and skull von crush. Uh, and, um, I guess we should say that Vito actually has a podcast over on your boy, Vince Russo's podcasting network. Um, Owen teaming with Coco beware. How does this come to be high energy? Isn't that how the song went? But it was, dude, it was two guys that had nothing going on. Let's make him a tag team. Let's put him in. Let's put him in some checkerboard taxi cab looking pants. <laughs> and one's got a bird and, look, and look Owen will put in suspenders and it'll be great. The fuck awful, awful high energy wins uh, in about a minute. Owen Penn skull. Uh, next up we get doink and typhoon and the finish sees typhoon whip doink into the corner tries to follow in with a splash, but doink moves. So typhoon goes into the turnbuckles. 
And then Doink takes him down with a bulldog, grabs a handful of the tights and gets the win. Doink is over like Rover here. You guys are pushing his ass hard on these early shows. Oh, hell yeah. Doink was red hot, man. He was a great heel. Everybody was into him and people were buying his shit. Sort of, uh, the most touching moment on raw in these early days is next after the break, Howard Finkel is in the ring and announces that the great Andre, the giant had passed away. And he asks everyone to stand for the 10 bell salute. And they show pictures from Andre's career during this little ceremony. Uh, Andre actually passed away on January 27th. How does everybody react to Andre passing? I know that Vince has a lot of love for Andre and I don't know that we have enough time that you spent with Andre to do a full episode on him, but what can you tell us about his passing and how it affected Vince and what Vince's relationship was like with Andre. It was a real tough time. And probably the reason that we had Howard do it is I don't think Vince could have gotten through it emotionally. And Vince was very close to Andre. And in the, in the years before Andre's passing, they were estranged and they weren't speaking. Andre had, gone and been on WCW for one of their big TBS shows. Vince felt betrayed. Andre felt betrayed. Um, so they just weren't speaking and, and it was, it was a really bad scene. And when Vince learned of Andre passing, I think there was a little bit of regret that he had never been able to, to talk to Andre, you know, one more time. And that's what, that's what he was really feeling and going through at the time. They were the same age, um, and had been through an awful lot together. So it was like losing a brother. And it's weird, you know, that, um, they weren't able to be on better terms towards the end because I know how much love Vince has for Andre. I mean, he got the first bronze statue, of course, that they released and in Vince's office, he's got the giant cast that was around Andre's leg and foot. He's got Andre's old Halliburton. This is all in his office. Like as of a few years ago, just as like decorations or props for the room. And this is for a guy who's been passed away at this point, 25 years. Right. And there's only one Andre, the giant, he was the first true giant in the business. But even more than that to Vince, he, he was a very close friend and confidant. And Vince looks at the things that Andre did, you know, the surgery Andre had on his back, WrestleMania three, that could not have been without Andre, the giant and Andre agreeing to do the job for Hulk Hogan. Didn't have to, but Andre giving back to the business, the way that he did, um, that was a tough one. That was a really tough one. The next match on the show is Yokozuna and Danny DeVito. Yoko wins in about two minutes. I'm curious because this is the second ECW guy we've seen as an enhancement talent. Vito or Skull Von Crush and Danny DeVito would both go on to work there. And they're both Northeast guys. How are you guys finding enhancement talent in the area? Because I know they're both local to the area. Who's in charge of sourcing those talents? Wow. At this time, it was probably still Chief J. Strongbow, but we were also using Walter Kowalski in the Northeast to get a lot of our talent from and bring guys in. So, um, 
but you just go to enhancement talents or us and kind of go through the Rolodex. Do you know Dave Silva still has a Rolodex on his desk? I believe it. I mean, he, he's, uh, he lives in Mexico. He doesn't have a calculator. He uses an abacus. It's just what they do. This is true. Um, Vince was, uh, back with a mic in his hand as we come back from commercial and he introduces money Inc and money Inc are the tag team champions of the world. Of course it's IRS and DBS and Vince says something like, well, gentlemen, you asked for the time. What do you have to say? And Ted said, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And of course they're talking about Brutus, the barber beefcake telling his sob story about losing his mother, his father, and having his, his face smashed in. And they're challenging him saying, Hey, we'll give you a match. Why don't you start with the champions? Um, Ted and IRS flip a coin, which Ted calls his heads without showing IRS the coin. He puts it back in his pocket and he declares that he won and would face beefcake. And at this point, the manager of money, Inc., Jimmy Hart comes out and Vince asked him where he'd been. And Jimmy tells money Inc. was a waste of his time because they're the tag team champions and they don't need to do this. <sighs> IRS cuts a promo about how when Brutus was laying in the hospital, he wasn't paying taxes. Uh, this is just ridiculous. Uh, but now a match is set and we're going to get Ted DiBiase taking on Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake. Lex Luger makes his entrance and Vince reminds us that he made his debut at the Royal rumble and, uh, he's pushing, uh, this narcissist angle. Lex of course has a mirror set up in the ring and starts to pose. There's the, the ring girl. And, um, then there is, uh, someone advertising raw again with the raw signs was one of these early, like raw card women. Were, were, were these the oinkettes that we saw from back in the day? We use them from time to time. Yes. Uh, another ECW guy, uh, does the job for Lex Luger next. It's Jason Knight, uh, who would go on to be Jason in ECW. And before the match, we see the now famous vignette with, uh, the Minnesota Vikings, Steve Jordan working with Mr. Perfect and Mr. Perfect throws a pass to himself. I kind of forgot that that was on one of these early rolls. Absolutely. Some of the best uh, Sergeant slaughter, big Bob Remus, but Sergeant slaughter produced a lot of these vignettes the second time around with Mr. Perfect, uh, because a lot of it was done in Minneapolis and Sarge had ties there as did perfect, but it was, we were able to get a lot of the different stars in the NBA, the NFL, major league baseball to do stuff with Kurt and they were so ridiculously over the top. They may have been, I don't know if they were as good as the original Mr. Perfect vignettes, but they were pretty damn good. Uh, sort of fun deal here. I guess we should note the week prior it's Ric Flair and Mr. Perfect in the main event. Now we've got Lex and Jason in the main event and that's the end of raw. There's no raw on February 8th. It was preempted for the fucking dog show. So we're back on the 15th and we start with a promo with beefcake and then one with DiBiase and you have an idea what we're headed for. The first match on the show is Glenn Ruth and Bobby who taking on the Steiners total squash three and a half minutes. Uh, Glenn Ruth would go on to be, uh, one of the headbangers. Who was Bobby? Who, 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 who we go to WrestleMania nine report. Mean Gene starting to run down the card. And then we get Yokozuna versus Ross Greenberg. Ross Greenberg sounds like a rib. 
<laughs> Ross Greenberg was actually a hell of a hand and a really good dude. He was an extra from the Northeast. Uh, Savage is still having trouble with his microphone. He's had it the entire show from the first match on. Is this a shoot where he's having these issues with his microphone or is this a gimmick that you guys are trying to work here? Unfortunately, no, it's a shoot. And it was one of the inherent problems of using an in-house system. Um, Vince is throwing to clips of superstars the past week where we're seeing Yokozuna destroy Jim Duggan and, uh, Savage just takes Bartlett's headset. And that ends Bartlett doing commentary, which is probably a good thing, right? <laughs> Poor Rob. That was so mean. Uh, back yes, on, but Randy was frustrated, as was Vince. Back on Raw, Vince announces all the participants in the upcoming 16-man battle royal, and he says they've all heard that Giant Gonzalez would be one of the entrants, and the other 15 refused to be a part of the match. So now, for the sake of the battle royal, Gonzalez will no longer be involved. That's a pretty fun gimmick. And it, <laughs> They show clips, uh, from the 13th of superstars where we see giant Gonzalez destroy a young Luis Piccoli in a three on one handicap match. The other two guys run away. Uh, now it's time for the battle Royal. And this is sort of fun here. Listen to this cast of characters, Owen Hart, Kamala, Kim Chi, Tatanka, El Matador, Razor Ramon, Shawn Michaels, Coco Beware, Iron Mike Sharp, Damian Demento, Bob Backlund, Typhoon, Berserker, Terry Taylor, and Skinner. What a main a- event anywhere in the world. I was ready for you to say that. Towards the end, you know what's coming. Giant Gonzalez comes out and he pulls the Tonka and Sam and then gives him the double headbutt. While Razor rolls out to the floor, Gonzalez throws the other two and hops over the top rope himself, thinking he's won. But since everybody else is completely out of the match, except for razor, he wins by default in our main event. Here we go. Ted DiBiase and Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake. It doesn't take long for IRS to blast him from behind with the briefcase and plain side of the ref for the DQ. Here's what we're really looking forward to. They put the boots to beefcake and then DiBiase holds him up for IRS to hit beefcake in the face. With the briefcase and, uh, Jimmy Hart is begging IRS not to do it, but he gets shoved away. And of course, beefcake gets nailed in the face with the case. So Jimmy jumps on beefcake to protect him. DiBiase wants to hit him too, but Jimmy begs him to stop as money Inc starts to walk back towards the back laughing. Jimmy Hart stays in the ring with beefcake until he's taken out on a stretcher. And once he's out, Savage points out that there's a bunch of blood on the mat. This is the first time we see Jimmy Hart as a babyface in his entire WWF career, right? I think it was the first time Jimmy Hart had ever been a babyface, period. And it was during this time that Jimmy had become the shoot manager of Hulk Hogan and was traveling with Hulk and doing a lot of the Hulk appearances. Hulk needed Jimmy uh, in the outside real world. So the decision was made that Jimmy would be a baby face and manage Hulk in the, uh, WWF as well. The next raw is uh, February 22nd and uh, it's going to take place from the Manhattan center and Rob Bartlett is standing in front of the crowd. And there's a big sign that says Hulk. And he says, he's learned one thing is that wrestling fans can spell. And then he welcomes viewers to raw and the opening plays. So I found that to be a little interesting take. We decide to insult the wrestling fans to open the show. That was a compliment. Yeah. Um, 
the first match on the show, of course, is Bam Bam Bigelow and Scott Taylor. Taylor would go on to be Scotty too hotty. Bigelow gets the win here uh, with a headbutt off the top at about three minutes. This is such an interesting time in the company because you've got guys who were mainstays in the eighties. You've got Hulk Hogan. You've got Brutus, the barber, you've got Kamala, you've got Bam Bam Bigelow, but then you've also got sort of this new era of performer coming along. It's a weird time in the company. Don't you think it's, it's a transitional time and it was the, what the hell did we call it? The, um, the hell did we call it the new generation? You know, that, that's kind of where Vince's head was to, to present new younger talent and give a fresh, this is a fresh new look. And with Monday night raw and all these new shows and different ways to expose talent new, new was always good. So next we see uh, Hulk in a pre-tape with uh, Vince McMahon. Hulk is dressed in all black and wearing jeans and he's with Vince in a studio that has pictures of Hogan all around. And Vince start by saying the whole world was awaiting his big announcement on Monday night raw and hoping that he would say he's returning to the ring. What is the future for Hulkamania? Hulk referred to Vince as Mr. McMahon here and said the future of Hulkamania is so exciting. He sat back in the last year and watched the little and big Hulkamaniacs continue to train, say their prayers and eat their vitamins and believe in themselves. And he says, those people aren't just his friends, but they are his heroes. And those are the people who continue to set the example for the rest of the world. And Hogan says something like when you're at the top of your field, whether it's business or sports, people are going to go digging around in your personal life. And when they did that to him, they found out he's a human being. He says, he's not afraid to admit that he's made mistakes. And during the 60s, 70s and eighties, he bowed to peer pressure and made some mistakes. Um, he stated his father once said, don't do as I do do as I say, but he wants to change that he says the age they're living in there is legitimate media. But there's also what he called tabloid terrorism. He says those folks are going to dwell on the negatives, dig up all the dirt they can. And even if the allegations are false, they don't care who they hurt. They still report it as if it were the truth. And he says, thank God the Hulkamaniacs are not like that. And all they want to focus on is the positives. And he knows that the Hulkamaniacs and with that attitude, that the future of America is all in the youth. And he wants to be their leader for the nineties. And he says, now it's not do as I say, it's do as I do. And he has five rules. He wants the Hulkamaniacs to follow train, say your prayers, eat your vitamins, believe in yourself. And now believe in Hulk Hogan. And he finished by saying, wait until you hear what he would say on Monday night raw. And Vince says he couldn't wait. So Bruce, this is really a PR piece to sort of combat lying on Arsenio about taking steroids and all that, right? Yes, it was there. There had to be. They had to address it. Right. And to ignore it would have been bad. And Hulk just needed to come clean and say, Hey man, I made a mistake. Didn't want to come out and say, Hey, I lied on Arsenio, but you say I made a mistake and I'm trying to fix it. Um, not going to dwell on the past, move forward. And that was, that was his way of addressing it. Who wrote that? Did, did he spend a lot of time that writing was, it? Did Vince write it? You, nothing was written. It's just what we discussed. Those were his words and how, how it all came out. So it was all just sort of ad lib. You had an idea of what yeah. you wanted to cover, but he just freestyled right. it. Yes. Uh, when was that shot? Uh, probably I want to say the week before the show or just, it was a few days before. 
So at that Monday point, night raw, and, and I know we covered WrestleMania nine in our archives, check it out. Something to wrestle.com. But at this point, the plan is to just get him on TV, work on the big angle with Brutus and DiBiase and go from there. Right? Yes. Okay. Um, the next match on the show is Shawn Michaels and the Beverly brothers against the nasty boys and Tatanka. I, I hope you're as excited about that as I am. Tatanka wound up winning, uh, about 15 minutes in when he pinned Shawn Michaels, um, Tatanka and Shawn would go on to wrestle for the intercontinental title at WrestleMania nine. And this is obviously to set that up here. Why was Tatanka put in this spot here? Was Vince high on Tatanka? Yes, he was very high on Tatanka and Tatanka was new. He had a great look. Uh, Native American, the real deal. So Vince was kind of getting behind Tatanka here and felt that uh, he had a hell of a future. The next matchup was uh, Crush versus Terry Taylor. Crush wins by submission in a little over four minutes. Uh, <laughs> and they show a replay of what happened last week with IRS smashing Brutus's face with the briefcase. And at the announcer's desk, Savage says it was only a broken nose sustained by Beefcake, uh, but the intent was for much worse. And Vince said that Hulk is going to be on after the break. This feels like the time you guys are really pushing for the biggest rating ever to not only have a Hulk Hogan interview, but to have Hulk Hogan in the middle of the ring live on raw. This feels like a ratings bonanza, right? Sure. It does. And, and, and again, like I said, yeah, we knew what ratings were, but we weren't living and dying by the ratings with any stretch of the imagination, but yes, with cable and live TV, you're looking for those for that big audience. And this is the first time we're going, Hey, let, let's do something to garner a big live audience here. Right. Vince is in the ring and Hulk comes out. He cuts a promo and then announces that he and Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake are now the mega maniacs. And Jimmy Hart is their new manager. Um, was there ever any real concern? You know, I'm sure we'll talk about it later, but was there real concern about what Brutus could or couldn't do? after that parasailing accident and all of his rehabilitation surgeries, because taking that briefcase shot, even though it's a storyline, feels like you might be a little nervous about that. Beefcake was very nervous about it. We all were. And probably why DiBiase and, uh, Mike Rotunda IRS got, got the nod because you couldn't ask for two better professionals to take care of you. And there were a lot of precautions made so that, he was very well taken care of from camera angles and everything else to make sure that the briefcase was, was safe and that he wasn't getting hit in that deal. Um, and then the apparatus that beefcake wore on his face was to further protect him in matches. But yeah, we were a little shaky. Didn't want to pay for another new face for beefcake. Uh, chat me up about Hulk Hogan. And his return here, how far in the works was this? Because he had obviously been laying low for a long time. Who reaches out to who, who pitches it? How do you guys decide to go ahead and put the band back together? Vince reached out to Hulk, first of all, and asked him what, you know, what his intentions were. And when he saw himself coming back, what he wanted to do, uh, Hulk, you'll love this. His idea was. Hey, let me come back and let me get, uh, the next guy over and get them ready, you know, for the spotlight to take my place. And Vince, I, I like it. He says, and, and he goes, and I've got the guy. He says, who's the guy? He says, Brutus. 
And Pat and I kind of look at each other. Like, ah, okay. What if we had somebody else in mind, (laughs) you know? Um, Hulk was dead set on, you know, Hulk felt that Brutus, to quote him, understood sports entertainment, had it, and was the only guy that he felt could replace him at the time. How amazing is that? Yeah. Unbelievable. So that's how the talk started. <laughs> then it got into, okay, what if we bring Brutus back with you as a team and do this thing? And let's see what we've got there. So Vince just thought, Hey, let's get Hogan back working and we'll figure it out. But if he wants to put over his buddy, let's just put them together. Right. Yeah. Did you guys always kind of feel like Brutus was the tag along that you had to sort of take care of? I mean, you know, much, I, like, much like Randy Savage is to the genius Hulk Hogan is to Brutus beefcake. I don't mean as far as talent and I don't mean, cause by the way, I like both of those guys. I know I've had a lot of fun here shitting on Brutus, the barber beefcake, but when I was a kid, I was strutting and cutting. I was into it. I get it. The, The whole reason this became a thing on the show is I didn't think he should be the guy to beat Mr. Perfect. And I can't help, but feel like some of that is Hulk Hogan's influence. So some of the, go ahead. No, because it was Vince Brutus was over. I mean, Brutus was over and yeah, he was. Yeah. So, you know, they, they did draw, they did have a, a strong following. Um, but I will make a promise to everybody that comes to the Brooklyn show. I will tell a never before told story. This is a story that even you Conrad have never heard about Brutus, the barber beefcake. And well, Vince McMahon. I'm all about it. And if you want to hear that story, join us on January 19th at Barclays Center. And there's only one place to get your tickets. It's boxofgimmicks.com. And Lord knows Brutus had a bunch of fucking gimmicks. But you will not believe the tricks that we have in store for you. And I wanted to ask you here, because live on this show, you've got lots of smart fans in New York. And a lot of them are the same fans over and over and over. I mean, these guys are the passionate fans who are showing up every week, the hardcore wrestling fans. Was there a concern that when you cart Hulk Hogan out, maybe he wouldn't get this awesome reception because they're smart fans. It's funny. Yes. (laughs) There was always that concern. However, believe it or not, that's what we wanted. That's kind of what we loved because it was the unpredictability of the audience, how they were going to react. And Vince would always go back to, you know, if the New York audience buys it, everybody else is. And if they don't buy it, that should be assigned to you. Um, New York loved Hulk Hogan. They did. The last match on this episode of raw it's undertaker and Skinner. And Vince tells us that we're running out of time. Skinner jumps on Taker at ringside and has the claw wrapped around his throat. And Vince yells, they're out of time. We'll see the conclusion next week. Of course, Undertaker wins. Here's my question. Was that the design or did the Hogan shit run long? And that sort of ruined what the main event plan was. Oh my God. No, that was a hundred percent. The plan, you know, back in the, back in the olden days, and especially on mid South, we used to joke about it all the time was every week is folks, we're out of time. We got to go. We'll see you next week here on mid South. It's, you know, it's a Donnie Brook. It's breaking down in Tulsa. So 
I'm laughing and I'm saying, hey, we're live. Well, we don't have the finish. We'll show it to them next week. And it gives them a reason to tune in next week. And they tune in next week and they get the finish of the match from the previous week. But we leave them with a cliffhanger. Every good television show would leave you with a cliffhanger wondering what's going to happen next week. And soap operas and shit. So that was done by design to see how it would work. Vince hated it. <laughs> so we wanted to run you through a handful of these first few Raws to sort of give you a, a flavor of what the show was like. And, you know, just sort of stroll down memory lane. Eventually you guys move away from all live and you start doing a lot more taped. That's just a financial decision at that point, right? Yeah, we, we had to, and, and we were doing things on the road and it just, we, we had to do them. We, we had to tape some, so we were even taping, you know, two, three at a time. Sometimes when do you remember some of the, uh, the thinking behind the way the storylines were integrated into raw changing, because you mentioned a little while ago that sometimes they wouldn't necessarily have storylines that carried over into superstars. This would just be for raw. When do you remember that changing? Probably. Well, when syndication started to die, you know, we went from a time of paying to be on the air to being paid to be on the air to going back to a barter system and, and everything was coming full circle and syndication just wasn't what it used to be. And we were realizing that we had this great audience watching us live on Monday nights that we're in a better time slot. Let's let's concentrate on cable. Let's concentrate on on the raw show. So probably about 94, 95 was really when the change came to let's make raw the a show and everything else will follow it because it was live and you could do that. Um, in the early days we were a slave to the syndication and we had to go back and make raw kind of fit syndication and have it have its own stories. So yeah, 95, maybe. When do you think you guys sort of settled in to what raw would be? You know, we talked about the genesis of the idea and how it all came to be and, um, the nervousness of putting together the first one. When do you think you really started to hit your rhythm? 97, maybe 90. Yeah. 97 ish 98. Wow. So you're years into it before everybody's really comfortable. You think? Well, because we were constantly changing and it was constantly evolving. Um, and really, I think that that that's part of the problem. I don't think that it's, it's evolving anymore and changing enough as a, you know, we, we changed every couple of years. We were changing sets. We would, you know, Raw's war, it, the format would get flipped a little bit and, you know, you've seen the same thing on Monday Night Raw and SmackDown now for, what, the past 10, 12 years? I don't know if it's the exact same, but you do see. Similar. It starts with a long promo. I mean, and there are things that are fairly predictable. You know, if you're in the middle of a match and someone gets thrown to the outside, here comes the commercial. I mean, but yeah. the, some of that stuff do, does become a, a little bit of a formula that you can predict. It is formulaic cookie cutter. And when we were fighting for our lives, we were constantly evolving and constantly changing, trying to make the product better and different. So it, it's, 
Yeah, but I would say we really settled in 97, it, 98 it, in that it, time. It's sort of fun to see how it evolves too with, you know, we're going to do small arenas. Then we're going to go to big arenas. We're going to do lots of pre-tapes. Then we're not going to do any pre-tapes. Everything's going to be live and we're going to phone people in. Okay. Now we're not phoning people in. Maybe we'll satellite them in. Um, the con that there's not going to, not going to be any ring card girls anymore. Uh, Vince McMahon's going to move away from the desk. We're not going to have any outsiders doing the announcing. It's all going to be wrestling people. Did you prefer Vince? on commentary or events on a headset yelling at the commentators for me personally, <laughs> um, I preferred, I don't know. I, I probably, it was better for the product for Vince to be backstage and being able to, to help produce things backstage and be able to talk to the truck and talk to the commentators throughout for me personally, especially in those early years, once I got those first, God, probably several months of Monday Night Raws, I was sitting at ringside next to Vince and producing him there. Later on, I got a wireless headset where I could go back and I could run the backstage and I could still talk to Vince. I had his commentary in one ear, had the truck in the other ear, and I was all over the place. I preferred that just because... I could say, I didn't hear you, Vince. <laughs> you know, I was doing something. Uh, when you're sitting right next to him, you get the, the fist in the knee. Was raw always the number one show? Like, was there ever anybody who was sort of old school and still thought the syndicated network and the weekend shows superstars and whatnot was still more valuable or does everybody think right away? Oh, this is the deal. No, it took about a year before a year or two, maybe before raw really got to be the number one show. Why do you think that is? Why do you, I mean, obviously if it's live and it's prime time, it feels like everybody would go that way. Is it just old school wrestling? Your shows are on the weekend and the syndicated network sort of what brought us to the dance. Yes. And that was the model to promote live events and a live event was still, that's where the moneymaker was. So you had the the syndicated shows to promote those. And you had to have that to make the live events work. That was the thinking. I know, I know that you get weird whenever I bring up money. So I try to be the, be as friendly as I can here, but I'm glad you mentioned that, that live events were the moneymaker, because I think a lot of times fans assume with all the glitz and glamor of TV, that that's really where the money is. But we've also covered how expensive a show like this was to do compared to a house show, not nearly as expensive. You don't have the production. You don't have the satellite time, et cetera, et cetera. From a compensation standpoint for one of the boys, let's say it's a middle of the card guy, not a top guy, not a curtain jerker, middle of the card guy. What's he make on a house show on average? Let's say it's a sold out house show, 6,000 fans compare that to a payday for a Monday night raw here, which is running in the red because of all the overhead. And there's only 600 seats. Well, for Monday night raw, especially during this time, man, you're still getting TV pays. You're getting 25 bucks process that now yeah. on that same house show, 6,000 fans sold out your middle of the card. What do you reckon? One of those guys would make maybe probably about a thousand bucks. Is that not crazy? Yeah. I mean, when you really compare the amount of money percentage wise, $25 to a thousand, but from a business standpoint, man, it makes total sense. 
It, it really does. And it just, things change and, and we didn't, we weren't making the big money off TV and now they are making more money off TV, but they're also drawing a lot larger gates for their television tapings as well. Well, let's get to Facebook. We've got some questions over there and we want to get to those, but we also want to tell you all about when we're coming to Philadelphia, come see us the day before the Royal rumble. It's going to be on the 27th of January. You don't want to miss it. Tell them all about it, Bruce. Well, it is going to be a part of the icons of wrestling, uh, collectors fest on Saturday night, January 27th at the old B19 ECW arena. And that night we are going to be a part of a double header with Jake, the snake Roberts. Jake goes on stage at eight o'clock with his one man show. And then we will go on right after him. And it's all for one price. It's only $75. You get Jake, the snakes, one man show, and you get something to wrestle with live with Bruce Pritchard and Conrad Thompson. Hey, and if you're going to NXT, don't worry because we're not going to be going on until after NXT finishes. And it's just, right down the street so come on out and join us on saturday night at the old ecw arena n42 and uh we are going to entertain you and we're looking forward to that having a great time i'm going to be at icons of wrestling saturday and sunday so stop by and uh, see me there as well beforehand and make sure and see us saturday night with jake the snake where are tickets bruce that's real simple. Go to pronounspal.com to get all your tickets. That's right. Pronounspal.com. All right. So let's get to Facebook. we got tons of questions here and, uh, we asked you, Hey, creation or all you got questions. We got answers. Hit us up. If you have a question for the rockers, you can ask it right now over at facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. Bruce, are you ready? I'm ready. Armando wants to know, was it difficult to fill up the arena or did it sell out fast? Sold out fast in the beginning. Matthew wants to know who came up with the raw logo. That was something creative services did. We just, uh, wanted it to be raw, raw down and dirty. And when they drew it up, we liked it. Um, Mark wants to know since there are early episodes from the grand ballroom of the Manhattan center. Was there ever a worry that you guys wouldn't be able to fill an arena on a Monday night? No, not really. Uh, but we liked, we liked the idea of New York and we liked the idea of intimate. Steven wants to know, did Vince ever truly envision what raw would become? I don't think so. I think we were looking at originally. Look, Vince, we talked about Vince talking about the WWF network on the show. Vince has envisioned a lot of things. And I think that at the time we had a vision for what raw was, and it was this down and dirty show that would be different than the big arenas. So in the early days, that's not what we wanted for it. Ryan wants to know what was the reaction behind the scenes to the New York crowd chanting Sean's uh, blank an F word. And let's go sailing to Brutus. <laughs> it's New York. You got to love them. I mean, I, we would be entertained by that. Uh, Steven wants to know why was Damien Demento in the opening for the show for two years? Look at him. That was a good God. I mean, man, that catches your eye and you're asking that question. Thank you for noticing. Lots of questions like this. Uh, Matthew says it's a silly question, but we got it a lot. So I don't think it's that silly. Why Monday night? 
more than anything, because that was the night that primetime wrestling was on at the time. And we were just replacing primetime. It happened to be on Monday. It was the end of a tour where you would finish up. You would start your tour usually on a Wednesday, Thursday, go Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It's the end of a tour on Monday. Zachary wants to know what was with the annoying siren at the beginning of the early raw tapings. Whose idea was that just to annoy you? Really? No, I just to annoy that one person that asked that question. <laughs> well, I mean, here's the deal. It does get your attention. Do you remember somebody saying, God damn it. Get me more sirens. Yes. No, <laughs> no, it just was the, it was cool. It may, it, it gave you an uneasy and a New York feel because every time you walk down a street in New York, usually there's a siren or the police light or fire engine light going on somewhere. Uh, this is just me talking. How cool is it that they're doing the 25th anniversary from both Barclays and the Manhattan center? I think that's pretty neat, man. I think that's pretty neat. Um, what other names got thrown around to do commentary for the show that comes to us from Robert. Well, we, we talked about, obviously we talked about Bobby. We talked about Savage. We talked about monsoon and, as we spoke earlier, just some of the different New York icons and sports from Marv Albert to, uh, Bob Costas. So there was talk about doing some different people and then Vince just settled on the team. He settled on uh, lots of armchair quarterbacking about this, but I feel like we should mention it because it feels like something he would have brought up. Why was there nothing with Bret Hart on the first episode? There's no match. There's no promo. It's your opportunity to introduce your champion in a post Hogan era and he's not there. Instead, it's an interview with razor. And I get that you're doing razor one week and then Brett the next, but on the debut show raw in hindsight, maybe the champ should have been there. Did Brett have an issue with being left off of the first show? No. And I don't know if, and I don't know the answer to that question, but I am going to assume that we might've had a live event book somewhere else with Brett on it. Dave believes that raw lost something when you guys left the Manhattan center in September and he felt like it wasn't nearly as special after that. Do you agree with that? I think if we had continued to do the Manhattan center and that be the only place, I think you'd be saying the same thing that, you know, ah, raw had the same look at the Manhattan center. I'm tired of it. So it evolved is all it did. And I enjoyed the Manhattan center and the Manhattan center had a great ambiance to it. But I think the same would be said if we had stayed there for a long time. Uh, John wants to know how much acid was involved in the creation of Max Moon. Wasn't as much acid as it was uh, heroin and crunk. Crunk. Seth Webb wants to know how long did construction of the ring take and how long did setup in general take? I'm sure he's referencing how difficult it was to get it up the elevator and all that. God, probably it, it took like about three hours to get the ring and everything up there to get the ring up alone, which normally it, it should take about 40 minutes. David has a great question. If the business was doing better at the time, would the Manhattan center still have been chosen or would they have opted for a larger arena? No, the, because the idea of it was to make it different than all of our syndicated shows that we're in a large arena and we wanted it to be different and small and gritty. Raw. Um, 
Drew Russell says, why even after WCW gave away the results time after time, did it take so long to go live weekly? Strictly financial, right, Bruce? 100% financial. Yeah. We just weren't in a position to do it at that time. Aaron wants to know, hypothetically, how would Jim Cornette sound if he were to describe Shawn Michaels mullet from January of 93? It's a beautiful mullet, just like beautiful Bobby's mullet and Dennis and Stan, motherfucker. And kind of like the bitch at Dairy Queen who fucked up my order of double cheese, double mayo, double onion, double shit. Sam wants to know. Motherfucker. Thank you. Did Bruce use IcoPro? <laughs> I did for about a week. Hated it. Oh, what'd you hate? Sorry. About it? What'd you hate about it? God, it was gross. It, it gave you gas. It, uh, they had these drops you put under your tongue that were the worst tasting things I'd ever tasted in my life. I mean, as you can tell, I'm a, I'm a real gym buff. Um, yeah, you know, I, I preferred, you know, I don't need all them supplements and stuff. Michael Hughes wants to know if there was a reaction to Rob Bartlett freestyling. Shawn Michaels pulled the knife during the break. Yeah, there was, you know, Rob had a lot to learn and sometimes he had to make mistakes before we knew what was in his head. Uh, here's a fun one. I don't know when we'll talk about this one. Uh, Mario wants to know what was the story with Friar Ferguson who created the character and why was it dropped so quickly? Mike Shaw, who was Norman, the lunatic, uh, muck and sing and all those other bastion booger as he later became. Mike had a meeting with Vince and Vince looked at him and saw a monk. Vince wanted to have a mad monk that didn't say anything that was quiet. But yet when he took off all of his stuff, he was crazy in the ring and really destroyed his opponents, but essentially preached peace and, and tranquility. Uh, just didn't work. You know, we, we tried it in dark matches a few times and it just didn't translate. And so while we were doing it on TV, also at TV and dark matches, we would have him work and, and it just Vince didn't see it. Lots of questions on here about Ico pro, because they were such a big part of the early days of raw. Is there, um, I don't know that everybody knows this Vince owned Ico pro, and this was his opportunity to develop a new revenue stream. How, how, how big of a mandate was there in the office amongst the boys on television? Push the goddamn powders. No, it was, it was big. Everybody got, you know, their supplies of Ico pro and we did a lot of commercials for it, but yeah, it was, it was kind of like the magazine. It got pushed. Why did it flop? Do you think? I don't think it was a good product. Who, uh, who developed the product? Did Vince work with someone? Did someone pitch him on it? That, Hey, yeah. you, this is the era you're into this. You have a natural fit for it. People who watch your show like this type of thing. If you have some of your talent endorse it, it's a natural fit because you have the endorsers and the vehicle to promote it. No, it, it was all a product of the WBF, the world bodybuilding federation. And it was used, uh, that's was its original intent and how it came to be. But obviously wrestlers, wrestling fans that work out, 
it was a natural fit. Uh, Dr. Fred Hatfield is the one who developed it. Uh, he was extremely passionate about it. Vince was passionate about it. I'm not a gym guy, so uh, I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't as passionate about it. Uh, Kevin wants to know, did taped Ross have a different vibe as opposed to being live for you as a talent? Yes, I think they did. Uh, it wasn't the end. There wasn't the energy in the crowd. Chris wants to know what would it sound like if Duke, Duke, Duke sang Shawn Michaels theme song. I'm just a sexy boy, sexy boy. I ain't your boy toy, boy toy. I'm just a sexy boy, sexy boy. Duke, 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 Duke. Mike Palmer asked a question that I think we've addressed before, but you can give us a synopsis. Why was the show eventually divided into two shows? Raw is war and the war zone, uh, for ratings, because then it could be listed as two separate shows and each show would have its own rating. Uh, Michael wants to know with it being Bobby, the brain Heenan's final night, what was the going away party like for the brain? Uh, it was very sad. A lot of crying. It, it wasn't a big party. It was sad. It was, it was, it was goodbye and I'll see you later. Um, and it was a hard one for me. Lots of fun questions on here about Sean Mooney. Who would win in a shoot fight? Todd Pettengill or Sean Mooney? Sean Mooney. John Connor wants to know why did USA always favor the damn dog show over raw? You got me. I always thought that was stupid as well because the dog show didn't do the kind of ratings that Monday night raw did, but they had a commitment to it in the K Koplovitz who was the head of programming at the time, loved the dog show and she loved, uh, tennis. So tennis in the summer and the dog show would always get that preemption. Mike wants to know, is this place, the Manhattan center really that much better than the bingo hall that Bruce makes fun of WWE or ECW for no comparison. One had class other had N 32. Uh, Jordan wants to know, did Vince intentionally want to run small arenas for the look of the show, or was it just the nature of the business at the time? No, we wanted a completely different look than syndication, which was large arenas. Uh, Christopher asks the same question that about 90% of our questions on Facebook are Max moon. What the fuck? He, what the fuck, man? He shot <laughs> shit out of his hands. We get tons of, Ugh. we get tons it, of questions about S's guy, uh, which a lot of people call Howard Stern fan, uh, the straw hat man and the Hawaiian shirt guy get special treatment in WWF shows. Like they did at ECW shows. The idea being is there, they were allowed to buy the same seats every single week in the Manhattan center. Could you sort of go old school and reserve a certain seat every week? As long as you paid in advance, you know what the Vince actually asked that question. How did these guys get the same seats? No matter, no matter where we were, whether it was, you know, like the garden, Manhattan center, Philadelphia, every long Island, every place we went, these guys seemed to be in the same seats in the front row every time. So they had to know somebody. And, and I'd love to know if anybody out there knows them, please tell us how, because I was on the inside. We didn't even know how. Uh, here's a fun question. And I think this is a fair question. Andy wants to know what else goes on in the Manhattan center. 
I mean, that's a real question. What else would they use that for besides raw? We wrestling fans don't know. They, they used to use it for recording the New York symphony. The acoustics in it were phenomenal. Okay. So they, they did a lot of, uh, music recordings for big bands and things like that. And then they would also host large parties. Aaron wants to know, when did you decide to move away from enhancement talent and go with established stars having matches exclusively on raw? Well, that was the idea with raw in general at the very beginning, even though we didn't do it, we tried to make them more, we had more competitive matches on raw than we did on syndication. I would say that that move probably was made once we started getting competition from WCW. Interesting parallel drawn by Andrew here. Raw's first show felt a lot like shotgun Saturday night's first show was raw meant to have that shotgun feel forever. Yes. Is that why you brought back shotgun? You think? I think so. Yeah. You know, when you, when you are live and things happen organically, there's a feeling to it and it's a, it's an uneasy feeling. And as a viewer, that's an excitement. When you plan those things and week after week, when it happens every single week, because it is planned, it gets old and it's no longer spontaneous. It's no longer exciting or edgy. It's, oh, what are they going to fuck up this week? Amon wants to know, why did you eventually get rid of the raw girls? Cost. How much were you paying them? Mm, Sometimes 50 bucks. Oh my gosh. Cash. Uh, Carlos says, do you agree with mean Jean in saying that the Manhattan center was a toilet? No, it wasn't a toilet. It was a pain in the ass, but it wasn't a toilet. It's a cool building. Justin wants to know what kind of notice did the company get when raw would be preempted for the dog shows and tennis? Oh, we knew a full, full year in advance. Pascal wants to know, did Jim Johnston come up with the raw theme song here? Yes, he did. What sort of, uh, interaction was that like? Like, you know, with Vince and Jim Johnston, did Vince have a vision for what he wanted the song to be? Or did he just say, got a show, pal. It's uncooked. It's uncensored. It's an hour. It's live. It's New York. He he wanted, he wanted live and edgy, live, edgy pounding. You know, I want a sense of urgency. I want a sense of unpredictability and just, you know, pounding. David has a fun question. Did catering exist the way it does today for the initial Raw's? Man, I'm trying to think. I I don't know. I don't remember catering in the Manhattan Center. I think that we would always either get something to eat uh on the street or you know like go somewhere real quick. I don't think we had catering there. We had drinks and all that, but I don't remember food. I don't know why this cracks me up. Somebody wants to know, did you guys pay the talent their $25 in cash or check? In the old days, they used to, but then it became just part of their check. Okay. So it wasn't something they'd get paid that day. No, but they could take a draw if they wanted to. There was some early, this is from Jake. Uh, what were some early 93 storylines that were scrapped? Anything involving nails that you remember? Well, the only thing that was scrapped involving nails was the, uh, angle with the undertaker. Yeah. I mean, that was long before raw. Yeah. He was fired a month before I believe. Yeah. But what would the plans have been for the nails undertaker feud? Had we got to see some of it on raw? 
I was going to WrestleMania. I uh, believe we were talking about either doing a, a casket match or a cage match at WrestleMania. Ben wants to know why did Hogan never work a match on the early Rawls? Cause he was gone shortly thereafter. And Hulk was somebody that you didn't want to see wrestle on TV a lot. He usually got Hulk wrestling on TV a couple times a year. Uh, what was the, uh, what was the, what was the best era of raw in your opinion, Bruce attitude era? When do you define attitude era? Can you break that down from one year to another? I'd have to say 90, 97 to 01. Well, I think that's going to bring a, uh, bring us to a close here. Anything else that you can think of that you may want to share with us for the early memories of Monday night raw? Yeah, I'll give you, because it, it was asked to me on my, on my personal page, what was my favorite memory of Monday night raw? And I have to go back to the, the fight that we had between Shawn Michaels and Kurt Hennig that went out onto the street in New York. And the idea was that we were doing an interview with Shawn Michaels live on the street in the middle of the day. This quote happened earlier. So we went out and shot it. I produced it. And Kurt was going to arrive in a car and see Sean there and just attack Sean. And they would have a wild fight onto the street. And then we would have people come out, pull them apart, get them in the building. And that was to, to kind of start their angle. The question was, was, okay, what if the cops come? And if the cops come, we had a plan to get the talent in and basically get them away, so on and so forth. What I didn't expect is that when the cops came, the cops just sat in their car and refused to get out because it was a mob scene. People were everywhere. And the question was asked, whose car was it that they used that we went through the windshield? That was Howard Finkel's brand new car that he was so proud of and talking about how he, he got this brand new car. And so Vince wanted Kurt to arrive in kind of a new car and Vince had his driver, Bobby drive Kurt up there. The car stayed there and that's the car that, uh, Sean went through the windshield. They kind of dented up the sides, but the real damage came after the fact when the wrecker came to pick the car up because the audience came out after the matches and they beat the living shit out of that car that was sitting up on the flatbed wrecker. And Howard Finkel ended up getting a new car out of the deal. Hilarious. One of my favorite uh, early memories of raw is the uh, one, two, three kid and Scott Hall. Can you think of another favorite early, just as a fan, not necessarily a backstage story. Well, see, you stole that one. I, I look at the flare flare, leaving the, the Hennig fight and then the, the creation because that New York crowd named one, two, three kid. And that was a very special moment. He is at Bruce Pritchard. I am at, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. And we are out of time. We'll see you next week here for the rockers and all things. Marty Jannetty. ask a question right now at facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle and be sure to tune in next Friday at noon to something to wrestle with the world of NLW radio never stops Bruce Pritchard.
John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B L E A V on YouTube or wherever you listen.